Hi everyone, this is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi everyone, thanks so much for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Uh, we're so happy to be back for another week of good conversation, hard questions, all those kinds of things. Uh, Kira, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Things are good. Beautiful October. Gearing up for not Halloween. I am in a house with a child, <laughs> and so we're all very sad about that. <laughs> There's got to be at least a little Halloween stuff happening, hopefully. Yeah. Is there like some candy involved? Candy candy without the costumes and fun neighborhood walks, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, that would be by far the worst part of the pandemic if I were still a child. I would be totally torn up about it. Halloween was my absolute favorite. I, was, I have such a sugar yeah. tooth. I would absolutely not be able to do it. it was, yeah. I'm so glad Pretty that didn't sad. happen to me. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, lots of people are doing very creative things. It's just that the pandemic has robbed me of my, much of my mojo around cooking and other things. Like, and people keep giving me good ideas. Like other people keep telling me ideas like make a scavenger hunt. And I'm like, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I mean, there are things you can do. Scary movies, you can do stuff. There's stuff you can do, but it's yeah. a little bit of a bummer not to do yeah, that. The, no. the neighborhood, you know, throngs will not be happening this year in costume. And it's, you know, we'll live. It, it's hardly the, the worst of the pandemic, but, but it's a little sad. Yeah, I'm sure that that's, that is, that's very sad. It also, I feel like i I mean, I've been very bad for many years at uh, having a good Halloween costume, but I feel like this year the, the bar should be pretty low for all of us, <laughs> you know, on what we're supposed to be able to get done in these times. So, you know, exactly. if, if you're if you're listening and you're killing it out there on, you know, a great <laughs> Halloween plan, then good for you. But <laughs> I think I have zero plans. Uh, yeah, I actually, we, we are we are planning to have one of those. We, we've started to go to some of these outdoor restaurant things um, right. in San Francisco. So we're going to one of those the night before Halloween that is a restaurant that has old movies that they project on the, you know, foreign cinema, this place yeah. in San Francisco. So we're going to go there and- I love that place. Ho hopefully watch a scary movie while having dinner outside, socially distant from other people. But uh, yeah, that's one of the things we've started to reintroduce into our life in the past couple of months, because we were those people, you know, childless couple that loves living in cities and purposefully wants to be in them. So we always like to, that was us. We would go out to dinner yeah. all the time. So we've tried to start going a little bit more, but it is still, it's really different. <laughs> it's a real challenge. I, I will tell you, I, I'm, and I love eating out. I haven't done it. Not one time at all. I mean, yeah. it's pretty crazy. And there are plenty, I mean, we are lucky because being in the Bay Area, there's plenty of places with outdoor options and they've done a really good job at different, you know, spacing people out, but I, we haven't even done it once. So I, and yeah, you great. can tell it's not, it's, it's not that popular of a thing, but um, <laughs> for us anyway, I think it's been a nice, 
thing, uh, you know, it's just always such a balance, right, of, of the question of what, what is safe and what is good for your yeah. community and all of that. So hopefully we're doing a, a decent job of <laughs> getting back out there in a, uh, in a safe way. I don't know, two weeks before the election upon our recording here. So the fact that we can both be, ha you know, saying nice things that are going on in our lives or generally being in a good mood is a, a real yeah, accomplishment. Absolutely. Well, that's one thing I'm not doing right now very much of is looking at social media. I'm not just <laughs> hanging out on those channels too much because I, I just, I, there's no, I'm just waiting for an exhale. Yeah. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> just waiting and I, I can't really be I could put my head into it much more than that at this point but I mean you know we all have our own coping mechanisms you have to do whatever yes. makes you get through the day yeah, exactly well um I am very excited about one of the ways that we are going to get through the day today which is that we get to have time to have a conversation with the incredible Vivian Lofness who is joining us for the podcast today welcome Vivian oh thank you I'm so glad to be here yeah, we're so fortunate. We're so happy to have you here. Uh, thanks for, for taking the time and, and joining us. Yeah, absolutely, Vivian. It's a pleasure to have you. And I'm going to give a brief um, little introduction so we know a little bit about, but it's actually, it's really hard to be brief with Vivian. She is incredibly accomplished. Vivian is FAIA. Uh, she is a university professor and Paul Mellon Chair in Sustainable Architecture at Carnegie Mellon University. And she has more than 40 years of industry and government funding experience, and she is a key member of the Carnegie Mellon's Leadership in Sustainability Research and Education program. She's serving on the boards of the AIA, the ILFI, Well Living Lab, Phipps Conservatory, um, and has been recognized as an AIA fellow, as I mentioned, a lead fellow, a, a National Institute of Building Science fellow, and a senior fellow of the Design Futures Council as if that's not enough. So that's quite a mouthful. But uh, Vivian, I would, I'd like to get started by just having you sort of tell us a little bit about how and why you got involved in architecture and in academia. What has been your path? So um, as with many uh, architects, uh, somewhere in your high school years, you fell in love with um, math and science and art and chemistry and you just wanted to do everything and when you started to look at what profession could I possibly pick that would let me continue to focus in all those areas and someone would say well you know architecture is sort of the blending of the of the uh, left and right brain you could do everything if you studied architecture and so off we go uh, I applied to universities that had strong math and chemistry and architecture programs so that was a particular subset and ended up um, after a, a full year of, of study where my where the math courses became more and more abstract numbers disappeared it was all letters which took the fun out of math I mean it was all in the numbers that I that was the fun for me um, at a certain point I said you know what I'm going to just jump into architecture because it lets me do everything I love that description um Vivian, because it seems so apt for you too, because I think people often when they understand the full scope of the things that you're doing, they feel like you are doing everything, really touching so many things. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you've noticed the academy changing recently, maybe the emergency of more faculty teaching sustainability in architecture schools around that, if, if you want to touch on that. 
Absolutely. I think, uh, so just jumping into, um, you know, teaching students of architecture or future professionals uh, at universities has, for many of us who've taught the required courses on, an, on energy and environmental design, we were essentially a required sidebar to the real business of, of, of teaching students to design buildings for, for, you know, for a decade, two decades, three decades, until all of a sudden people began to start talking about the sustainability challenge, the carbon challenge, the water challenge, and the students began to really beg for design studios that would really raise their, their, um, uh, their profile and their understanding. And they, they realized that a lot of the professionals who were hiring graduates of programs were excelling in environmental design uh, solutions. And so it, it really has been a pull process, not from the accreditation boards, but from the students themselves. And I, I think we're just getting to the point where um, there's more than a, a suite of three or four environmental science courses. There's now dedicated studios that can, can be attached to those courses. We're still not at the ultimate goal, which is that every studio addresses issues of environment and equity. But we, we're certainly moving um, a little forward. And uh, I, think, I think one of the challenges is gonna be um, just the slow turnover uh, in faculty and making sure that we have professionals who are willing to step into academia who are really seasoned in the environmental design movement. You know, Vivian, that, that makes me think I kind of skipped over something a little bit too, which is really how you found yourself in the teaching side of architecture. I mean, I understand what attracted you to architecture generally, but I think maybe we skip that step a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, and it was, it's actually, uh, it's a somewhat amusing story. Um, I graduated from MIT and uh, I got a rotary scholarship to go study in Finland. So I lived in Helsinki for about a year and a half, took Finnish courses and studied contemporary fin Finnish architects, starting with Alto, who was still alive at the time and going all the way through to Pentila, who is an you know, amazing designer. So I had a wonderful year and a half of play after my master's degree. And I was offered a job at the American Institute of Architects by John Eberhard. Uh, they had a research corporation. Uh, they don't anymore, but they should. Um, AIA's they research should. corporation, they should. That's so cool. Um, was critical in actually getting the federal agencies who were right there in Washington where the AIA is sitting, uh, getting those federal agencies to start thinking about architects um, as we address the built environment. And so I had just accepted this job with John Eberhardt. I was going to be flying back to DC from Helsinki. And I got a call from John Habrocken, who was the head of the School of Architecture at MIT, asking if I would come to Boston and teach environmental design course, uh, the, the introduction to environmental systems. And um, because the faculty member was on a sabbatical and needed a person to pick up the course, and I had been a TA in the course, and the faculty member said, why don't you ask Vivian? And I said, oh, I've just accepted a job. I can't possibly come to Boston. I'm going to be starting in, uh, at the AIA Research Corporation. I'm very excited about it. And he says, oh, who's the director of that? And, he's, and I said, oh, John Eberhard. Ah, oh, he's an MIT grad. I'll call him. So John Abrocken calls John Eberhard. And the two of them negotiate on the phone on my behalf that I was going to work a, a three-day week or a three-and-a-half-day week in Washington and then fly to Boston every week and teach a required course to all the MIT third year, fourth year students, uh, and then fly back and go back to work. Um, you know, they agreed, and then they basically convinced me to accept it. And that's how I began in teaching. 
It wasn't it's until years later that I went full time. I didn't go full time until I married Volker Hartkopf, who's my husband and a faculty member at, at Carnegie Mellon. So I, I started full time teaching in 81, but I was teaching back in in 75 as an adjunct. That's great, uh, Vivian. It really speaks to it, the roots of your career being the blend of the professional and the, and, and the academy. I mean, in that it, it really couldn't be more foundational for you. That's great. I'm also just thinking about how different that would have been in the year 2020, that you wouldn't have had to have flown back and forth from TC to Boston. <laughs> so it would have made my life a lot better because flying to Boston, in case you don't know, in the, in the false uh, semester is a nightmare. It's, it's uh, fogged in almost all the time. Oh. And um, so yeah. <laughs> I, started, I actually ended up in Vermont at one point, taking a bus back to Boston wow. in order to teach a class that... <laughs> Oh, it was goodness. chaotic. Well, I'm thankful that they managed to convince you. Uh, that's, uh, that's <laughs> we've all been the better for it. Um, well, so, so let's talk a little bit more about your work now. Um, we'd like to know if there's a project or projects that you're working on uh, at the moment that you think uh, listeners should know about. And I will just say that we know that you're kind of working on a million things. And so um, the act of deciding what to share with us is is an act of, of uh, you know, of, of careful omission. So, um, you know, with that, uh, what, what would you like to share? So I thought I would share three, three projects um, out of, out of as, you, as you say, a million, a million things. But one of them is an effort that I'm uh, working on with Bert Gregory at Methune and um, uh, Alistair McGregor at Ove Arab to try to crowdsource a um, uh, zoning codes for sustainability or for resiliency, really trying to address all the challenges of resiliency from food to water to energy to, um, to land use and, mo and mobility. And um, we've been able at, at two successive uh, green builds uh, to interact with an audience that numbers between 200 and 250 people, uh, all pros in this area, generating critical ideas and then prioritizing those ideas. And we will actually present the last of this three uh, at Greenbuild uh, in, a, in a month. So we've been distilling this, um, this, this new zoning code for resiliency um, from, from the brains across, across not just the nation, but, but in many cases internationally. So that's one. Um, a second area that I have the privilege of working on is I've been asked to serve on a National Academy of Science panel that is focused on carbon neutral US by 2050. And they're trying to actually get a policy statement out by this election. Even though it's a two year panel and we will have a more refined statement next year, this year we've been scrambling to write a policy statement for how to get to carbon neutrality by 2050 and what we have to do by 2030 to get there. Now, when they aggregated this committee, it's led by amazing thinkers in the, um, the power generation transmission field and in the carbon sequestration field. So they're literally looking at an all electric future and ways in which we can find new sources and sequester. And then they invited one person to represent an industry, one per person to represent the building, uh, the building, in building environment and one person to represent transportation. So the demand side of the equation has three people out of a committee of 14. And we're basically trying to say, but, but, but the biggest action is in reducing demand. We are so sloppy in this country. We have so much opportunity. 
on a world scale to dramatically reduce demand and certainly the building sector does. So my job on this panel is to convince them that we're actually more important than carbon sequestration as a solution to carbon neutrality by 2050. And I, I, I'm, making, I'm making inroads, but boy, I wish there were more people on the committee with me. Oh, yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> it is a big one. Uh, the third one I'm working on is just a lot of fun. Um, I've been working for quite a while on how do we cost justify better buildings. And of course, you all know that the, the magical way to cost justify better buildings is to show that they yield better health and they offer productivity, right? It's going to be not in the energy savings or the water savings, although that helps a little bit. It's going to be showing that human health and productivity go up. And um, I've, I've slowly begun to morph into a focus on triple bottom line as a, a strategy for proving um, what investments really make sense. And we were given an opportunity by the Construction Innovation Institute to work with a series of building owners. And one of them is the Smithsonian Institution. And the Smithsonian Institution offered us the chance to study the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and NAMAC as it's affectionately called, since nobody wants to say all those words. Um, we actually created three hypotheses of a really amazing water system, an amazing HVAC system, and an amazing architectural uh, sort of zoning system where they designed a box in a box in a box. And we're using triple bottom line to show the benefits of those three investments, which are, these are like millions of dollars investments, somewhere between five and $15 million worth of investment in that building. It's a very expensive museum, beautiful, spectacular museum. And we've been able to use triple bottom line to show that those amazing investments for high performance systems actually pay back in many cases in less than five years when you use all three. Um, the triple bottom line is, uh, is, is a wonderful way of capturing financial capital, things that we pay for uh, in our operations and, and uh, maintenance of buildings. The natural capital, which is the environmental benefits of the actions, and the human capital. And, I, and it actually provides an avenue for getting people to even think about net present value, which just financial capital would get, would get us beyond first cost into net present value investments. But adding in the environmental capital, which is part of carbon reporting, it's part of corporate sustainability reporting, we could basically help the executives get over that first cost, first least cost hurdle with triple bottom line. So I'm very excited about that project. So those are three projects to give you an overview of some of the wonderful opportunities I've had as a researcher and practitioner. Yeah. And I just want to highlight one of the things that is so fascinating about watching your work is the the ways in which you move between the profession, um, the academy, uh, you know, there's sort of a policy element to the things you do, um, et cetera. And, your ability to kind of think about all of those things as systems, I think is one of the, one of the great contributions, um, you know, that we can all see in your work. And, and I want to ask you specifically about one aspect of that. Um, you're on the board of directors of the AIA right now. The, the organization has been making a lot of headlines, um, in particular, its recent um, transitions around climate leadership and around uh, diversity and equity commitments. Can you talk about what it's been like to watch that transition happen and in some ways to obviously push those transitions? Um, how are you feeling about it, that kind of thing? So as, as I mentioned before, I was at the AI Research Corporation in my, in my early career as, as, a, as a professional. So I spent my first um, four years at the AIA 
and I've been, uh, as, as both of you know, I've been on the AIA Committee on the Environment and uh, on the National Committee and chaired that, and, and I've been active in the AIA. But I haven't actually sat on, on the board until this year. And I was asked by Jane Frederick, who's the board chair, uh, to, to join the board as an at-large member. It's a very small board now. They've got a strategic council and a board. Um, and the board is, is now a, a small working board. So it's a privilege to be on this board. And she asked me because this is the year they're going to focus on climate change. So we started um, last December adopting the COAT Top 10 framework as the framework for design excellence. This is huge. It's an amazing movement forward. It's wonderful for the design, the environmental design community and for the design community to know that the framework uh, is now the framework for design excellence. Of course, what happened in, in you know, February and certainly by March is COVID. And all of a sudden the board is scrambling to try to understand, well, whoa, what is COVID gonna do to the profession? What is it gonna do to practice, to the economics, to, to the design of spaces, to the need for spaces? And uh, so there was a huge remobilization uh, that the board had to lead on COVID. And then the Black Lives Matter movement all of a sudden became front and center and the board was just pivoting yet again. And to the credit of this board, not only did they pivot, they immediately wove together these stories and, and how critical it is for us to do climate action in order to achieve equity in order to uh, uh, address issues of COVID and, and other um, diseases and, and health concerns that are going to be cr critically uh, linked to climate actions. And today we, we um, uh, met to talk about the materials pledge. It, as you know, the AIA has been a leader in the 2030 challenge pledge. They were an early signer. Um, there are over 500 AIA firms that have signed on to the 2030 commitment that are actually reporting um, their performance and achieving literally the net zero by 2050 for new construction by moving their portfolio forward. It's truly an impressive. Right now, the organization is in a leadership position, which is it's a privilege to be able to serve on the board. That's wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. And it's exciting to see the progress. I know a lot of people have worked very hard for that. Kira probably <laughs> should be listed among them. Um, right. And I'm, I'm so happy to hear that that, that is happening. Um, okay, so on a related note, you have worked a lot on the setting of standards in architecture. You kind of mentioned this a little bit um, with the AIA code framework. But it, uh, I, I wonder if you can speak a little bit more about the difference that standards make in our profession and in our schools and how you think that is moving along. You started to talk to it a little bit and we talked about the, how the academy is changing. We just like to, you know, hear you talk and, and I think especially for listeners who haven't really thought this through yet, the importance of professional standards and, and how it is that we actually keep them up to date, let's say, with the things that we care about or, you know, continue to revisit them? Yeah, I mean, um, with the AIA board, um, goals matter. With the U.S. Green Building Council and the well, um, uh, the, you know, the, the Well Building Institute and the Living Building Challenge, it's the standards that matter. And the standards provide goals and metrics and uh, I am an absolute supporter of, of, the, of the importance of, of having those metrics on the table. 
um, I have to battle my own campus. They've been an early adopter of LEED uh, Silver for all their buildings, both new and retrofit. Uh, but they, at some point they said, well, we've been there, we've done that. Do we really have to keep at this? And, and the answer is absolutely. Because number one, if you start to pull out of establishing, you should obviously accelerate from lead silver to something a little more aggressive. But uh, if you pull out of that, you, the, the quality of what's delivered to you by the professionals can easily slide backwards. And it's a, in a very effective way for executives to act without having to become experts. And I think executives should adopt well standards and lead standards and 2030 goals or net zero goals and living building, everything that they feel that they, they can uh, justify and let the professional community rise up to meet the challenge. And they do. It immediately separates quality in the professional community. As soon as you tell the professional community that, that our school is going to be a lead gold school, then certain professionals don't compete for it. They just don't have, they, they basically will, don't have the wherewithal, or it's gonna be a living building. I mean, immediately it, it begins to attract the highest quality of professionals. So it's a very effective way for an executive to get the highest quality professionals. And not just in architectural profession, but the professionals who have to work together, because you don't get any of those high level goals without having a water specialist who's a landscape architect or a civil infrastructure person. You don't get that without having mechanical engineers who know how to get to the highest level of, of air quality, you know, so ultimately it not only differentiates quality among the architects, it differentiates quality among the consultants. So it's so strategically smart for executives to do this. And then for industry, it's the important pull. If you're manufacturing products that are sort of just meeting code and products that are really high performance products, and you get value engineered out of every project, your better products just don't make it into the project because they cost more. You basically throw up your hands and say, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna deliver those products anymore. So by adopting these standards and the highest standard that, you can, that your organization is willing to go for, you're pulling the manufacturing industry to, to be able to market and develop the best products. So I, I cannot imagine why we wouldn't wanna all be pulling the best. It's painless yeah. for the executives. They can even put a price limit on it and say, I want lead gold, but I won't spend more than X amount per square foot. Yeah. See what happens. Yeah, exactly. Get, get creative. Um, well, then on a similar note, part of this is also about accreditation and standards for people. And, you know, sometimes we, we have different names for those, but you've worked on that as well. And I wonder if you would talk about where you think that kind of fits in, obviously ties back into your role as an educator, but where do you think we need to get to with professional standards for, for the people? Well, I am, I am an eternal student. So I, I continue to sit for exams, uh, even though, you know, I've been teaching for 40 years. So um, I'm a, a certified passive house consultant, uh, you know, nine days of, of coursework and, and a, wow. a, a, a live exam and a, and a design exam that gets graded and, you know, just no, no trivia here, you know, you're going to be, and this is a subject I teach, you know, so I'm thinking, whoa, okay, this is tough. And I haven't set for my well exam, although I know I need to. Of course, the lead AP exam was another one. Um, I do think continuing education, I mean, it, it'd be like having a medical doctor that just wasn't, you know, keeping boning up on the issues. We, we, we're practicing in a profession that is as critical to human health and, and performance as the medical profession is, right? And we, we need to take an obligation 
to keep up with advances. And we should make it fun and painless for professionals. And, and certainly that is beginning to happen. I mean, the CEUs that are available uh, both online and, and in person at conferences are amazing. I mean, they're amazing speakers, amazing content. You know, I, I learned so much at the conferences that I do go to. So I, I think we're doing actually better in some respects at professional uh, continuing education than we are in academia. So one of my concerns in academe is number one, they're somewhat dismissive of things like LEED or uh, you know, any kind of standard. There's certainly you know, 20, 30, you don't have courses that jump into that, at least in a certain percentage of the academic environments. Uh, they're very leery of you know, eco-districts or new urbanism or anything that you know, would basically make numbers a critical measure of success in the design studio, right? Um, I fundamentally believe that NAB has to take charge of the design studio. They're always trying to take charge of the lecture courses. So they'll say you must, every student must have three history courses and two structures courses and two environmental courses. And, you know, they're taking charge of the lecture content. The only thing they direct studios to do is what they call the comprehensive or integrated studio. So they have one sort of test of all of those studio hours. So you've got students who are spending as many as 10 semesters, somewhere between seven and 10 semesters in the bulk of their academic time in a, in, in a um, you know, six hour a week or 18 credit course that is literally focused on designing it's the heart and soul of their thinking process is how am I going to create this amazing building and all the metrics are often left on the side in some lecture course that has nothing to do with studio. That's where we need to break down the walls. And I'm, I think we're going to need NAB to do that because it's hard to change the, the long track record of studio versus lecture course teachers content, you know, it's very hard to get yeah. a change. But if NAB says this much change, it would happen. That, that's such a big one. I, I've experienced it myself. And I, I can say that as a, as a lecturer right now, my 12 students, generally speaking, said that they're doing what they're doing with me because they, they felt like they'd had enough time with studio. <laughs> it was sort of like, a, you know, it, it was um, not only does that lack of, um, you know, real metrics mean that we don't necessarily get to use that time as fruitfully as we should, but it also means that apparently this is sort of a lot of redundancy. <laughs> it can be anyway. The students just kind of feel like, okay, I know how to go through the motions on this. I'll do it again. And it's definitely one of those things. I never thought I, I would have um, gotten so worked up about something like that, but uh, architecture school will do that to you. <laughs> Lindsay, there's another, there's another aspect that you would relate to having, having been the executive at Comfy, which is that studio, because of the fact that it tends to be semester by semester, can never get into building systems really deeply. It always skirts around the edges. It gets into volumetric and aesthetic, and in some respects, it might get into facade design with the systems of facades but it very rarely gets into what, what's the mechanical system in this building or you know, what's the structural system in this building. So those are left to these sort of lecture side courses. And of course, professional practice, it really is all about the systemic integration 
of, of, of the water system and the, and the mechanical system and the structural system with the architectural um, components that we're used to playing with. And I think it's going to be an interesting question of how can academia or should academia deal with the sort of design of integrated systems? Who has to be in the room to help students? Does it have to be students from different disciplines working together? Very few universities have building mechanical engineering programs. So if you got mechanical engineering students in my institution, they would not be, they would not have any information about buildings. Uh, they would know a lot about thermodynamics and fluid dynamics, but they wouldn't know anything about buildings. And so the question is, do we have to wait till we get the students into the profession to teach them about cutting edge systems integration? And if not, how are we going to rethink academia to make that happen? I love that. I, I, and, and I, you know, I continue to see this and it sounds like you do as well as more of an opportunity to just enrich the educational experience of architecture degrees. There's so much that they have an opportunity to learn about yeah. uh, when they're within those walls. And yes, of course, the answer can tend to be, well, they'll learn that in practice, you know, once they finish. And it's like, well, true, but learning in school versus learning in your professional life are very different experiences. You don't often tend to read other people's work if you're in a professional setting. You don't tend to um, be asked to critically digest and present a concept, look at a, someone else's work and thoroughly critique it in professional settings. You just kind of learn what you learn, you know? Um, and I, I just think there's an enormous opportunity for that. And it pains me that I can't do more of it in the year that I have with these students because they want to learn all the things about dynamic facades and algae and, um, you know, all, all of the complex stuff about how all these, they want to invent new materials, you know, it's all these things where I'm like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> there's only so many hours in the day. Yeah. Anyway. Um, creative and so generative. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's exciting. And it, it strikes me too, that given the need for acceleration towards more solutions and all these fronts, that we might actually be in a situation of needing to, dare I say it, reevaluate some of the sort of slow process by which young people are integrated into the profession and maybe capitalize on their passion and their energy and that you know, dynamic creativity that they have. I, I was just on a call recently with some students that were winners of the Coat Top 10 for Students competition, and they were doing internships very grateful to have internships during the during COVID-19 of course and but very uh, having an awakening moment to the real world of practice and to the shall we say low demand for sustainability <laughs> creativity and solutions on some of the things they were working on and they were going through that process and it did strike me I was like wow we're really going to beat all that enthusiasm right out of them <laughs> you know we really need to figure out how to get them like channel it and make sure we don't lose it. And, um, you know, and they were asking, you know, like, is this all, you know, do, do you know, they were curious, is, is this all firms? Are all firms like this, you know? <laughs> and I was like, oh dear, <laughs> this is very worrying. Well, actually, we, we should be a little more selective in where those internships are placed, right? Well, and, it, but I mean, it is many firms too. And the firms, I, it struck me that there could be, it would be interesting to see how that, response is processed by those firms and if there's a way that they could actually i mean things that a transformation is happening and that's they are an energy source and a passion source that we should be 
I don't know, capitalizing on. Anyway, I'm sorry, that was a kind of digression there, but it really is related to all those things and where old assumptions about when you're supposed to learn things or when those are supposed to come into play in the cycle, maybe it's time to start reevaluating some of those so that we can further um, advance. Vivian, I have to, uh, we understand that you have a, some sort of a queen for a day list. And so I must ask you to reveal what is on, if you were queen for a day, um, what you would do to uh, transform our reality. <laughs> so I'm sure all of you know that on our iPhones, we have lots of little list apps where we can keep a list of what we need to buy this week and you know what books we should read or what movies we should watch. And I have one that I, I call queen for a day where I list things that if I were in charge of the entire nation or world, what would I do? And, and let's just focus on, on the US for a minute. And I, I'm gonna just, it's, it's a longer list, but I'm just gonna pick five or six just to keep it contained. Um, I would actually say that we should build no, no buildings on new land, no new land. We're done in this country. We have, we have used up so much land and so much fertile earth, and we have abandoned so much infrastructure because we continue to sprawl our way into oblivion. And it has a huge carbon and environmental footprint. So if we as a nation said that all construction needs to be on existing infrastructures and brownfields, which of course is part of the living building challenge, no new land, um, we would have a huge positive impact. Another one would be that all development has to engage a diversity of populations. So it has to have solutions that cross economic, racial, gender, age, religion. You know, we, we need diversity. Diversity is what makes our country special. It's what makes cities exciting. It's what gives us different celebrations, you know, we, we uh, you know, Irish events and Italian events and, you know, English events like Halloween and, you know, we just, we, we celebrate diversity and it makes so much richer life. And it's what dis dis distinguishes the United States from many other places is the diversity. And if we, if we allow for design that would be single socioeconomic or single racial, gender, single age, I can't imagine retiring to a community of only old people. I am desperate to find a place. I wanna, I wanna find an urban co-housing project where I can move in with families with kids and, and empty nesters and young professionals and, and, and age with people different than me and giving me a whole different perspective. I think we need to start unpaving we need to actually unpave to save the U.S. We have to start taking out concrete. I don't know exactly what to do with it yet. <laughs> Did you want to say something, Lindsay? <laughs> I just love it. I'm just, I'm, I'm like imagining it and it's so refreshing. <laughs> you know, there are a couple of examples. You know, the highway falls down in San Francisco and rather than putting that concrete bunker back up there, all of a sudden San Francisco gets completely rethought. And the same is true in Seattle. There's an urban place in, in Seoul, Korea, where they took out this huge highway that ran through the heart of the city and they created an amazing greenway. It's with, with, with a water catchment and all this green and it's a recreational space for the, that, that just revitalizes the city. We need to start unpaving. We need to take everyone's driveway back to what my grandmother had, which was two strips for her Oldsmobile in, in grass. 
she didn't have a hard pipe uh, driveway from you know house to house. She had two little concrete strips in in the grassy area, and she was able to navigate right down those two strips right into her her garage. Uh, because then we have porosity, then we have biodiversity, then we have recreational space, then we have places for people in a pandemic to go walk, and the and the places will be continuous. They won't be little patches of green. They'll be continuous green. So I think we need to unpave to save. This is on my bucket list for Queen for a Day. Another one is that all buildings will be designed for environmental surfing. Um, I use the word environmental surfing because it sounds like fun and it is. It's about using daylight for as long as you can, no electric lights on until you need them, using natural ventilation for as long as you can, using passive solar for as long as you can. It means literally taking every uh, every sort of bio um, nature driven solution to its max and actually counting the days or counting the hours, taking the, the hours in the year and say, how many hours can I run on daylight? How many of my wake hours can I run on daylight? How many hours can I run on natural ventilation? Uh, this would again have a huge impact on our carbon footprint, it would dramatically reduce our carbon footprint but it would also dramatically improve quality of life because living, I can see in the rooms that you're sitting in, that you're, you're all in, we're all in daylight environments. We're all in daylight environments with views and of, of the outdoors, of nature. Um, we all have windows that open. We're not in a sealed office environment. And, and I, um, you know, I'm just, I'm in a room that's facing south. So in winter I get free heat and it lasts actually for most of the day until it's really, really cold outside or, or it's night. Um, so all buildings should be designed for environmental surfing. And oh, and by the way, that, that includes shading our windows on the outside. I'm looking for a photograph. Anybody's listening to this podcast. The, the Flatiron building in New York City used to have bright orange canvas awnings. They were unfurled at the beginning of the summer and left out until the end of summer. And then they were rolled up. Bright orange. So it literally gave a signal to the city and to people on the street a, we're here, look at us, we're here. B, it's the beginning of summer. We're gonna go into our summer dress, right? And the ability to actually dress for the season, dress our buildings for the season is all about this environmental surfing. And we should not be giving certified labels to buildings that don't have shading devices and don't have windows that open and don't have glass that allows for a lot of daylight transmission, right? We should, be, we should have those as prerequisites, environmental surfing. Okay, two more, and I'm sure I'm going to run out of time. Um, one is, I would love it if every American knew what EUI stood for. You could ask every American over the age of 16, what is MPG, what does mile per gallon mean? And what is your car's mile per gallon? And everybody over the, six, over the age of 16 would know what it means, and they would probably know what their car had. So all of a sudden you compare cars, you say, oh my gosh, you get you know 60 miles per gallon. Whoa, that's amazing, right? Or you have a car that only gets 12 miles per gallon. Well, that's awful. And people actually know the good and the bad in terms of the environmental footprint of a car or some, some of the environmental footprint of a car. But nobody knows what EUI stands for. If someone told you you had a building that was at 16,000 KB or 16 KBTUs per square foot per year, which is really good for an office building, Nobody would know that, and yet they should. And I would love to make EUI as much of a, anyway, if I were queen for a day, everyone would know. Um, and then the last one that I, of my, my much longer list is that, um, that we will design the watershed. That every architect would be responsible for putting their building 
in a drawing that shows the watershed that they're in and what their building is contributing to healing that watershed. And it could be unpaved to save, and it could be store, and it could be the amount of green, um, you know, bio swales. And uh, it could be not building in certain places because we're literally in the watershed or in the floodplain. You know, so I think it's time for us to learn how to draw watersheds and how to design responsibly within watersheds. And if we get that right, then we'll start to throw air sheds at people and food sheds and we could, I have this long list of sheds that I could add into there. If I could just get you to understand the watershed, I can talk about the air shed and what we should do for buildings in the air shed, right? Anyway. I love that, Vivian, I love it. Those are all fantastic and they all seem, this is the funny thing about Vivian. So they, it all seems completely logical and appropriate. I'm like, all of those are good. Let's adopt them all right now. <laughs> I wanted to just wrap up. This is the question we like to ask at the very end um, of all of our guests. If there's anyone that you are most inspired by these days, um, could be in any realm of, of you know, work or field or anything, um, just who inspires you? Okay, uh, let's, let, let me just do a few because it, it would, I don't wanna do preferential, you know, I hate doing preferential things, but um, some of the firms that amaze me are firms like Lake Flato, that completely externalized program. They take programmatic space out of the condition envelope and create outdoor spaces that are just to die for, that you wanna spend time in, right? And in the process of doing that, they reduce the footprint of what they're conditioning and make rooms that are so unique and so beautiful. Firms like Karen Timberlake that are, that are inventing new products and testing them out uh, and testing on themselves. I mean, if, if, if we were going to do environmental surfing, they are literally testing how, how long, how many hours can we surf before we need to turn on the lights or turn on the air or turn on the cooling. And they live through very, very hot working days while they test the boundaries. It's pretty impressive. Uh, there are designers like Herbert Dreisaitl, who is a water, he's written several books called Waterscapes. He is the most brilliant um, artist, uh, landscape architect, water engineer, and he is absolutely designed for the watershed. And when you go to one of his projects and you see the design of the landscape, you want it to rain. You want to see how it looks in the rain. It's so beautiful. You can imagine how it would be transformed in a heavy rainfall. And when you get there in the rain, he plays with water. Heavy rain swirls and makes music and, and, and the kids are out in the rain just being part of nature. So those are just some examples. I mean, it, it's a really super long list and, uh, and I, I hesitate to pick three, but. That's, those are beautiful ones, <laughs> so thank you. And some, some things certainly for all of us to go and look up and learn more about and visit, visit in other times perhaps. Um, well, with that, uh, that is a, a wonderful way to end. It's an inspiring and lovely way to end. So thank you so much, Vivian, for, for being with us. It's a pleasure. It's great to be part of your, your series. And uh, I just, I'm so much in awe, not only of the two of you, but the, the women that you've interviewed. What, a, what an amazing contribution you're making to these, through these podcasts. Well, thank you. Thanks. That, that means a lot. We appreciate it. Um, yeah, and with that, that is it for us this week on Women in Sustainability, Design the Future. Thanks so much for Acuity for hosting and uh, for you all, our listeners. Uh, please leave us a review on Apple. It really helps people find us. We appreciate it a lot. Thanks so much. Stay safe and we'll see you next week.